morning, church. Everyone doing all right? Ready to get in the next eight verses? All right, let's turn your Bibles to Mark 1, verses 21. And we'll read this quickly, and then we'll get into it. So, they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Just then, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him, and they were all amazed. So they debated among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into the surrounding district of Galilee. And so, as you know, from the verse one of this chapter we've been talking about in the last five weeks, believe it or not, we've only done five weeks, and we're only at verse 21. But I believe that it is important to take this portion slowly so that we understand what Mark is trying to do specifically in this gospel versus the other three gospels. And he's laying out a, uh, basically, uh, a plan to show you that he truly is the Son of God. And that the most important question that anyone can ever answer is, or ask, I should say, is who is Jesus Christ? That is the most important question on the planet. That is the one question that will either land you in heaven or hell, depending on how you answer that. Now we know from just James 2.19 says, even demons believe in God, yet they shudder. And so we know that it's not just a belief, although we are saved by grace, we're saved through faith, but it's not just a just the profession of faith, and then you go live however you want, right? But Jesus is not just a, Mark is laying out that Jesus is not just some sort of good teacher. He's not a moralist or uh, some sort of social activist, I guess you can say. And in fact, I was talking to one of you guys, uh, somebody in the church this week, and they were saying that some of the they were talking to said that they thought that Buddha and Jesus were best friends. And he said, trust me, they're not best friends, (laughs) which is a good answer. But Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says this, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Again, this is Mark's premise. Jesus is King. He is Lord to the glory of the Father. In Mark 1, what we saw so far was that his pronouncement is coming King. And you can't just say that this man who's coming is the king without proving that. And so Jesus began to demonstrate that. And the first thing he did was get baptized because he needed to identify with man. And he needed to fulfill all righteousness. He needed to identify with you and me so that as he died as a substitute lamb of God, he would replace us 
He, he, he represented us as sinful man. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. And then also temptation. He went through temptation. He needed, he couldn't just be this king, but then yet be defeated by his arch enemy. He needed to defeat Satan. But not only that, he needed to defeat sin. He needed to be tempted just like any one of us. And Hebrews says that he is tempted in every way, but yet he is without sin. And so he passed these tests. That's the first so many verses. And we get up to verse 20. And then verse 21, we see here that not only that, he has to pass the test against Satan, but also sin. But he has to pass the test of against the darkness. He has to have power over darkness. The liberator has to have power over darkness, over Demons and demons are are uh, attacking men and women for all throughout the ages. I mean, this is they may not manifest quite the way we see right here in the scriptures, but they're they're here. They're among us. And Jesus, in order for him to be the Son of God, he must take care of business and defeat the demons and darkness. And so he continues his theme. He is the son of God over and over again. And I think that is important for you guys as you look through these very familiar stories. What he's doing one after another, story after story. And he's not giving much detail. He just wants you to get the point that he truly is the son of God. And you need to listen to him and give your life to him. So this is going to produce faith. Romans 10 actually says that, that faith is produced by hearing the word of God concerning Jesus. So your faith is going to be stirred this morning as we get into this, which is amazing, isn't it? How many of you need your faith stirred this morning? Amen? All of us do. We've had a rough week, right? Uh, and for whatever reason, we always have uh, the good, good and bad every week, I, I suppose, right? But we need our faith to be stirred because you know what? We can't please God without faith. And the only way that we can please God is with faith. The only way we can have faith is hearing the word of God. All right, so let's look at, I want to look at seven, before we get into this, I want to build this up a little bit more so you guys can understand as we get through these next eight verses. But there are seven things regarding uh, things that are maybe truths that are important to know about demons. And for, I, I think it's interesting that the first half of Mark's gospel, the only beings that are sure that Jesus is the son of God are demons. That should wake everybody up. In other words, uh, you know, there may not, their atheism wasn't a big deal back then. They understood that there was a God. Uh, even uh, the, the Romans believed that there was a God. And then he believed it was Caesar. And so there is this competing interest of who God is. But they understood there's a God. They understood they, they all worship the God. In fact, Romans says that all of us worship God. In some way. And so uh, the first half of Mark's gospel, he is showing us just the sheer folly, the fact that everyone else rejected the Jewish leaders. They rejected Jesus, said that he even had a demon. If you remember later on, we'll see that. The crowds were curious, but yet they were uncommitted. The disciples exhibited uh, some level of faith, but yet still hard-hearted in many different ways. We'll see that in the future. And then the crowds... They just were 
largely uncommitted. They just wanted maybe a free meal or uh, healing or whatever else, some sort of physical benefit. But for the most part, everyone else was kind of oblivious, except demons. <laughs> they were the only ones that knew. It says here uh, in verse 25, or verse, where was it? Uh, it says that you are the son, that I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And so they know that he is the Son of God. They even called him Jesus of Nazareth. They knew who he was before anyone else knew. Of course, John the Baptist knew as well, and a few others. They, they followed Jesus. They, got, they wanted to follow him. They dropped their nets. They followed him because they were curious. They were interested in knowing who he is. Look at this in, in Mark 3.11. It says, The unclean spirits saw him. They fell down before him and shouted, You are the Son of God. And in Luke 8.31, they responded with terror because they might be cast into the abyss, or in other words, hell. Mark 5, 7, shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore, implore you, God, do not torment me. So demons knew Jesus for actually quite some time. Uh, why do we know that? In Colossians 1, 16, it says, For by him, who is Jesus, all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. You might be thinking, well, wait a second, did, did Jesus create demons? Well, he didn't create demons per se. Now, we know from different scriptures that we can pull together that demons are fallen angels, and God did create angels. And so these fallen angels who fell out of heaven, and later on in the Bible it says that one third of them fell with Satan, Lucifer, uh, the accuser, the brethren, so they fell and they became what is known as demons or evil spirits. You'll see here in Mark's text, they call them evil spirits, demons. It's interchangeable. But what was going on here is that they knew from the beginning because they got kicked out of heaven and Jesus always existed. And so they knew exactly God's plan. And they've been around now for thousands of years. And they know just how to tempt man. Demons knew that one day also that they would be judged. Matthew 25, 41 says this, that they will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And so hell is actually created for the devil and his angels. It's interesting. You might think, well, wait, people go there too. But it was originally created for the devil and his angels. And people that do deny Jesus will go there. We know that from scripture, but so they, it, it's, it's not going to be a party. In other words, it's not going to be a party for demons. It's not going to be good for them and bad for us. It's going to be very bad for them. Now, we don't know, the angels are spirits. I mean, none of us have seen an angel necessarily before. We know they exist. And, but yet at the same time, they can't marry. But yet we know later in scripture where uh, they, they can, um, uh, I guess, have sex with humans, and it says in Genesis 6, we know that that can actually happen, uh, which is against God's plan. Uh, they can inhabit human beings uh, for a time. They can possess the unbeliever. They can cause havoc on the earth. All these things we know can happen from Scripture. But through this passage, Mark continually says, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. He's setting up his rule. And as Jesus is setting up this rule, this is terrifying demons. 
I think it'd be good for you just to even write at the top of your notes, amazed and terrified. This whole message is going to be about people being amazed with Jesus and yet even terrified of Jesus. We'll show you how all that kind of comes together in the end here. But Demons can't be saved. That's another truth about demons. So people have asked me, you know, can a demon, you know, can they repent and kind of become good angels and then eventually become, you know, get back into heaven and be around the throne room? What we know is once they fell, that was it. But one thing we know about demons is when they fall, they can be saved. I don't know that's so simple, like elementary, you know, but this is important for this passage. Very important to know that. It says in James 2.19 that you believe that God is one. You do well. But the demons also believe and they shudder. In other words, they're terrified. Terrified of what? And we'll answer that in a moment. But here, Hebrews 2.14-17 says this, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he, which is Jesus, might render powerless him, who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives, for he assuredly, he does, for surely he does not give help to angels. There it is. He doesn't give help to angels. Once they fall, they fall. There's no help. But he gives them, he gives help to the descendant of Abraham, that's you and me. There's always hope. No matter how fall. How far you have fallen into the pit. There's always the crane of his grace to bring you out of it. Amen? No matter what. You're not like the angels. Once you fall, that's it. You're done. There's always hope. That's why we have to hear the gospel all the time. To remind ourselves there's hope for you. There's hope for your family. There's hope for those people who... You know have fallen so great. In fact, I talked to one church member just before we even started worship and said, my family's fallen, remember my family's fallen so, so far into the pit. The good news is they can get out of that. Isn't that amazing? That by the grace of God, in the twinkling of an eye, boom, they can just come right out of that. They don't have to go through all these steps either, by the way. Just in an instant, they can come to Christ and be saved. But not the demons. They cannot. Therefore, he said he had to be made like his brother in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in these things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, humans can be saved although they remain astonished and not believe. Many of the humans, of us, many people, you know, remain astonished. They're wowed by God. Yet they don't take that extra step and believe. Another truth about demons is that demons never attack Jesus. <laughs> his, his mere presence disturbed them. Isn't that amazing? They wouldn't dare attack him. They couldn't. You have to understand, God and Satan are not on the same playing field. Satan is a created being. And then the demons who serve Satan are even, I guess you can make an argument, even lower. But still, nonetheless, powerful 
In fact, in Jude, later on, it says something very interesting that the archangel wouldn't even talk to the demon. Wouldn't even talk to Satan. They, 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 they know better to do that. He said the Lord rebuke him. We're not just to go waltz around the earth talking to demons. That is a very dangerous thing to do. That doesn't mean that you're uh, that they're more powerful than the power of God. But that does mean that we are not as powerful as they are. That's why Jesus has to cast out demons out of people. Otherwise, it'd be pretty simple, wouldn't it, for them? Another truth is that demons attack human beings. They are invisible. Demons are invisible to humans while they're not invisible to Jesus. He can see them. Now that we cannot. We can see their manifestations. We can see the terrible things that they do around the world. But we don't just wake up in the middle of the night and see a demon. Now we might be scared of the dark. <laughs> we might be scared of the presence of darkness or the power of the darkness or the power of the evil and that might make us think that we're seeing things but the reality is that we can't really just turn on a switch and see a demon or see an angel many of them are for the most part 99.99999% are just invisible to human beings it always cracks me up when someone says, oh, they saw an angel, like the charismatics on TV. They're like, yeah, we just, we just talked before I preached. Really? You didn't pee in your pants? You didn't poop in your pants? You didn't pass out? You didn't die? That's amazing. You just waltz right out of the, came into the pulpit and just talked about, you talked to an angel? That, you know, by the way, that never happened. John fell to his face. They all fell to their face. They were terrified. In fact, remember the story in Daniel? The king was just, he was shaking. He saw the writing of the hand, the writing of the, the, uh, on the wall. It wasn't just some sort of conversation. We have to know that demons are very powerful. They are very powerful. Their goal is to trap and, and, and put into bondage many people so that they can drag them right directly into hell. The demons figure this, look, I'm bound there. So I'm also taking as many with me as I can. And what do they do that? What is their primary tool to do? That kind of work is what? Lies and deception. And we're going to talk more about what that looks like because here in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14 says this, that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Is an angel of light. That means a lot of the things that we see are good coming from the government, that we know are evil. That's what this passage is talking about. In other words, they hide in false religion. Demons hide in Jehovah's Witness religion. Demons hide all day long in India with people that believe in 350 million gods. Everything Satan not only hides in false religions, but also ideologies. 
Think about critical race theory. That is, a, that is satanic at its core. Not only that, but also what about homosexuality, the legalizing of gay marriage? He's hiding in court systems. Also abortion clinics. He's everywhere. Demons are everywhere. And they hide. They'd be foolish to manifest. All of a sudden, you just hear on the news, all of a sudden, you know, look like a scene from Ghostbusters. You know, this thing just, you know, breaks out, everything. People might wonder, wait a second. If this is happening here, then maybe there is good. And maybe there's a greater power over demons. And maybe that person is Jesus. They'd be foolish to blow their cover. So meanwhile, what they do here, especially in the United States or in the Western world, they hide. Where do they hide the most? In thought processes. Ideologies. People do some pretty stupid things, don't they, when they believe in dumb things, right? Look at the Muslim who just obliterates everyone else around them because they think they're going to see 72 virgins. But yet they see 72 devils that will torment them forever. They won't be virgins. But they do stupid things when they believe ideologies that will drag them directly into hell. And that's what Jesus has come to do to expose those things. And he does that very dramatically in the story. The demonic world always has held sinners captive. In Colossians 1.13, he rescued us from the domain of darkness. And transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That happened to every Christian here. You were once a part of that world. In other words, you were once deceived. You were blinded. In 1 John 5.19, we know that we are of God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And it still does, even today. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 says this. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In, those, in whose case, the God, small g, God of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. And then Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, very classic passage that tells us how one gets saved, but first tells us the bad news before the good news. It says here, and you are dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in what? The lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And what that means is, is that we were in bondage from birth. We didn't know any better. You might even had, maybe some of you who are younger might have even had parents who are praying for you and you, they would share the gospel with you over and over. And they would tell you, they would warn you, they would plead with you. And you just, you think back to that day and you're like, how was I, I was so, how, how did I not believe? Because I believe in the same stuff, I believe in the message. Now I understand it. I don't know how I could not believe what happened. Literally the blinders were taken off. The miracle of salvation, regeneration is the Bible that's what happened. Your parents were sharing the gospel with you. 
Friends were trying, were pleading with you. Grandparents were, I mean, they were pleading with you, come to Christ. And now, because of the miracle of regeneration, you get to believe. That's amazing. But we know that every person in this world is under the power of the evil one. And the systems are. That's why, guys, it, you should never be shocked at the news. Never allow your jaw to drop when you watch the news. Why? Because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Right? Why are we shocked? You know what news has to do now? It's almost like they're picking up on the messages we're producing here. They have to take it to another extreme, don't they? That's what YouTube videos are. They're notorious for that. Just They, they, just, they make you want to watch it, don't they? <laughs> Or they make you want to click, like news, the, just the, 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 the headlines. They make you want to click it, clickbait. You want to go right, right in there and you want to check it out. And as soon as you're like, ah, oh, I fell for that. It was not even, I knew what they were going to say. It just keeps you going. Sensationalism is what it's called. They want you to be like just enthralled with their news. But we're not surprised. Why? Because the whole power... The whole, power, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But listen to this. 1 John 3, 8 says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And that's what he's came to do in, in the Gospel of Mark. And he wants the Roman believers to understand, look, don't be afraid of darkness. He's coaching them along like a pastor, like an apologist. He's ch- coaching them along. Look, look, this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. You have nothing to worry about. Nothing. There will be many people who will be amazed by Jesus. And there will be demons who will be terrified of him. Terrified and amazed. But you know what? We can't stay there. We can't just be amazed by Jesus. We can't just be terrified by him. We need to fear God. And we need to run to him as Savior. That is Mark's goal, every page, every page. Acts 26, 18 says, To open their eyes, Paul's ministry, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and the inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. The liberator must have power over demons and Satan in order to save sinners from darkness. We need a substitute, and we need someone to rescue us from the power of evil in our lives. And that's all done by the cross. Every single one. So we might ask the question this morning, as we get into the passage a little bit more in depth, what makes demons shudder? Three things. Ready? Number one, the authority of the Word of God. Number two, the authority of Jesus coming to judge the earth. And number three, Jesus' authority over demons, over their power. So number one, we'll get into it. Verse 21, it says, They went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach, for they were amazed at his teaching. 
For he, he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. And just then, there was a man in the synagogue with the unclean spirit, and he cried out. And we'll pause there for a second. Now, I want you to look at they as we go through this passage. Who are they? Now, Jesus, remember, just in the past, Jesus has authority to call you and me to follow him. And as, as the disciples, the early disciples, at least Peter, James, John, and Andrew... And some say Matthew are in this, in this group as well, tax collector. They began to see that, okay, Jesus, he might be this one. And so Jesus said, hey, why don't you just come and see, walk with me. And they got to see a little bit about him. He was doing his ministry in Judea. And then he went by in Galilee as they were fishing and, and had a very lucrative business, as we talked about last week. He called them and they immediately dropped their nets and followed him. And why could Jesus... Why did, how does Jesus have that kind of uh, irresistible power? He does. He's God. And he has a right to call us. And he's not just wanting you to come and see. He wants you to come and follow him. And then eventually he'll say something later. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow him. He wants you to come and die. To your own ways. Your own life. Your own plans even. It's good and bad. It's good or bad. Whatever. I mean, it just your own sinful habits. He wants you to deny that, but also your good plans. Perhaps maybe you're like, I have this plan to go into ministry. I have this plan to do this. I have this plan to do that. Being a follower of Jesus means to deny yourself of your will and to pick up your cross and to follow him and to obey him. Capernaum was uh, another word for that is Kafar Nahum. In other words, that was Nahum's hometown. It just means compassion. It was a very prosperous fishing village. Uh, it was at the major road was called Via Maris. It was a commercial town. Uh, it was basically Jesus' headquarters for a moment, for, for a time. Uh, he kept coming back there, but it was also known as a very evil place. It was far from Jerusalem, far from the center of religion. And Matthew 11, 23 and 24, he says it's better uh, for Sodom than for Capernaum. Why? Because they didn't get to see the full revelation of Jesus. You remember how Sodom perished? Fire just came down. Obliterated the town. And he's saying, look, those who have greater revelation, like you and me sitting here, will have it worse than Sodom. That's crazy. But that should be terrifying in a good way. That we, as a church, especially in America, know way too much. Way too much. And that's in every area. He also entered the synagogue. And the synagogue, I'll just explain that for a bit. Because you're going to see the word synagogue. You'll see the word synagogue in your Bible probably all over the New Testament. You won't see it in the Old because it didn't exist. Per se. Uh, it, it, you'd see more of it in the, the, the intertestamental period. And so it developed in the 6th century B.C. in the Babylonian captivity. And so what happened was, where did everybody worship? They worshiped at the temple, right? So everybody came to Jerusalem. They worshiped there. But in the captivity, they were drawn to Assyria. They were drawn to, I mean, they were taken away to Assyria. They were taken away to Babylon. And during there, they still wanted to meet. And so they would, they would gather people together, kind of like a church, and they would meet and they would hear the, the word of God being spoken. They would, they would hear the law. Not everybody had a Bible, by the way. I think you know that. 
but not everybody had that. So they would go to the synagogue to hear the word of God preached. And they would have a ruler or like an administrator virtually. And then they would also have elders who would, who would rule. And then they would have visiting rabbis that would come in an intertestamental period and leading in on to the, into the first century, into the time of Jesus. But they also, uh, during the week, it became a school that visiting rabbis on the weekend and he would come and, and, and preach the word. Uh, elders would, would do the same thing as well. Uh, and then also they would judge cases. And you remember later on in Matthew, uh, in Mark 13 and Luke 12, it says that you'll go before synagogues and God and the Holy Spirit will give you words before the synagogue rulers. And so there was a little bit of animosity. They weren't open to Jesus. You saw that in Luke 4 where Jesus went into a synagogue, preached Isaiah, and then he, moments later he was about to get thrown off a cliff. And so they did not like him. He was not well received. And so in this, he went into the synagogue, which was kind of normal, and began to preach. And his message, we're not told. Now Luke, we're told what message that is. What, what he spoke. He spoke Isaiah. But Mark's goal in this passage is not to tell you what Jesus said. The goal in Mark's passage is to show you the people's response. That is the goal of this passage. What is the people's response to Jesus? And they said a couple of things. One, they were amazed, and they said, this man has authority. Now, that's interesting. These people have been hearing people preach the law for weeks upon weeks upon weeks. What's different about this guy? Now, people just say, well, because he's God. He's Jesus, of course. It's like the classic Sunday school answer. But let's dive a little bit deeper in and find out what he meant by that. First of all, we need to define authority. Jesus is, it means Jesus is a rule Authority, uh, dominion, jurisdiction. He has full right and power and privilege. He has full prerogative over all matters of life. In, in Jesus, he taught with conviction. He was different than the scribes. In fact, it was to say here in Matthew 7, 28, 29, it says, Jesus finished these words and the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as having authority, not as the scribes. So what was up with the scribes? What were they like? What was it like to be under the scribes in that time? They were the teachers, basically like the PhDs of the first century. And Ezra 7.10 was a, uh, it describes a scribe. He studied the law. He lived it out. He taught it. Nehemiah 8, verses 8, he gave the sense to the people. But they were no longer doing that anymore. In other words, Amos 8 says there's a famine in the land. Why? Because people were hearing the word of God and they weren't doing anything about it. Do you know that's God's judgment on a nation? Now, you don't feel that way because you're privileged to be in a church that preaches the word of God. But I, what I'm saying is like people outside in the world, they don't have that same access to the word of God. And what was happening here was that in the, uh, in the first century, rabbis were just clearly, they were just uh, simply focused on what other rabbis were saying. And they, they knew all possible views. It was like, well, there's this view, and then there's that view. Their teachings were, were muddled. Their, their teachings were, were boring, virtually. They, they, they didn't come with power. They weren't, first of all, they probably weren't living it out, so therefore it didn't have authority, didn't have power to punch. They were just saying, oh, well, this, this guy, they would read maybe a scripture, and they'd say, well, this person thinks this, this person, and it'd be like me standing up here and be like, well, you know, this commentator says this, this commentator says that, I would never land. It'd be just this boring lecture. We just go point one through like point 50. And, and so when Jesus walks 
into the, the pulpit, so to speak, and he spoke the word of God, their eyes were open. Because you know what he was doing most likely? He was calling people to repentance. And he was a pure teacher. These guys were undecisive. They were preaching trivial matters. They were mystical, allegorical. You see that in even preaching today. I think this means this. I think this symbolizes this. Whether it's the charismatics or whether it's Catholics or whatever it might be, there's, there's so many that twist the word of God and almost make it in a sense void, boring. And when they heard this, they, were just, it was just, they weren't like the scribes. Uh, Mark 12 verse 40 says, for appearance sake, they had long prayers. They, weren't, they didn't love them. They didn't love these people. They were just going through some sort of routine, which is easy for all of us to do. Let me ask you, if you're a life group leader, do you sound like a scribe or do you sound like Jesus? When you're in discipleship, do you want to sound like a scribe and just talk about all day long about how what Bible translation you should get? You sound ridiculous. That's not what it's about. You don't go to ADS, 80 students, and try to basically get into some big old debate. No, you read the word and you obey the word. And when they saw Jesus enter into the pulpit, they're like, the king is here. Or at least that's what Mark wanted them to know. Because somehow they missed that. They were simply just amazed because they're like, something's different. Something's different. I'm not quite sure what to do. But amazed just means in the Greek, it's a very interesting word. It just means this. Jesus blew them away. He blew them away. They were struck with awe and wonder. They couldn't believe it. They were amazed. When was the last time you went to life group or discipleship? You went in and you fellowship with people and you read the word. How about even the last time you read the word and you were struck with awe? You are simply amazed at who Jesus is as he walks off the pages of Scripture. When was the last time you felt that way? And maybe you do feel like that, and it's your, uh, it, it, it would behoove you to go to somebody else and say, look, this is Jesus, the Christ, look at it. I mean, it's amazing. He's got full power over you. You don't have to worry about the news. You don't have to worry about anything dark. You can go to bed at night and sleep like a baby. Why? Because he has full authority over the heavens and the earth. Amen? Do you read the Bible that way? You always waiting for a preacher to do that for you? I mean, they're there for that reason. But do you read it that way? Every time we gather with people, especially in life group, we should be absolutely amazed at the person of Jesus as we open up the scriptures. Less impressed with man, less impressed with what people say, but more impressed with the Bible because it is the very word of God. Amen? Luke 19, 48 says this, and they could not find anything that they might do 
For all the people were hanging on every word he said. It is important to hang on every word. What's next? Mark was writing this for the first time. I want you to clear away the familiarity and look at this and what would be next. Almost as be excited when we're done with this one. Okay, what, what's verse 29 about? Okay, no, so immediately, okay, there's another one. So what is he about to do now? What is this Jesus about to do next? Because I'll tell you, every action that Jesus does has implications in your life. Every action. Jesus' teaching was logical. It was clear. It was decisive. It was not mystical. It was concrete. It was not ambiguous. And it was loving. Shall I repeat that? This is what Jesus' word for all of us. We have to understand, when Jesus taught, he taught this way all the time. It was never muddled. It was never confusing. It was never mystical. It was never abstract. But it was logical, clear, decisive, not mystical, concrete, not ambiguous, and loving. And you know what? The silence and the astonishment of the people would finally be broken by the violent screams of the demon. In verse 23, it says, as Jesus was speaking, it says, just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit and he cried out, do you know where this demon manifested? At church. At church. You find that... That would have been shocking to Mark's hearers. Wait, wait, wait a second. Not, wait, wait, wait hold on. Not where like in, in, in just everyday life where there's evil happening and there's bad things happening. That's not where they manifest. No, 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 no. They hide in religious systems. They hide in the White House. They hide in the Supreme Court. They hide in courts all across America, legislating evil, incriminating righteousness. All across the land. This is just our country, right? 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. like I said earlier, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. But 1 Timothy 4, 1 says this, by the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. Well, how will they do that? By paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now you might be asking, are these demons literally teaching in some other, like, satanic temple? No. You know what Satan could care less about is satanic temple. Because he has the White House. Because he has churches under his finger in America. And I'm talking Christian churches. Pragmatic churches. Doctrines of demons have nothing to do with a demon getting a pulpit. His pulpit is the news. Demon's pulpit is the news. That's the radio broadcast system for Satan. It's in books. It's in ideology. Across the land, warping people's thinking for the sheer purpose to bring them to hell. 
That is the objective of every human. And to do it as discreetly as possible. This demon had no intention of screaming. By the providence of God, of course, we read about it, and he did do that. But I want you to understand the importance of that he... I don't think that he was supposed to blow his cover. Because the religious system, especially Judaism, was to... The demons were to try to keep that under wraps as, as long as possible, and they couldn't do that because he showed up. Jesus showed up. Now, let me tell you, demons are most terrified of the Word of God. Just watch the news, watch the, the, the debates and the craziness going on in Virginia. In the, you know, the school systems, you know, how they're just letting pornography reign, basically, in the libraries. and It's crazy. You can look it up. But a mother was on just recently, and she just... Basically, let the school board have it, but she has every right to do that. She wasn't being disrespectful. She was just stating the facts. They cut her mic off. It was showing books showing uh, gay men how to have sex with gay children. This is in the school districts in America. It's fine. They cut her mic off. People are terrified of the truth when they're in bondage to Satan. And it's happening, it's very easy to watch news because when you're in the Word. And you can see right through the deception of Satan. And the world will come up with anything. They'll say, well, your time is up, or, you know, this. And they're not interested in truth. The world is very religious, if you haven't realized. And the church is becoming very much like the world. What's amazing is when Jesus showed up in the, in the earth, he was talking to Pharisees. In John 8, I'll pick you up there if you want to turn there, John 8, 44 and 45. He was beginning to have this discussion with Pharisees, religious leaders. And he says, your father is the devil. I'm not sure if that made them happy. You want, they, you want to do the desires of your father. He is a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. It's impossible. He's the father of lies. Whenever he speaks lies, he speaks from his own nature. He can't help it, and neither can the world. So don't be shocked. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. The church is becoming like the world, as I said earlier. And unfortunately, the world is becoming more religious. Aren't they? Isn't it amazing how they're defining love? God said in, in Genesis 1.27, I've, I've created male and female, and I've created them for marriage, male and female. And yet the world says, no, this is love. This is love. The world is becoming very controlling, and it always has been that way. We shouldn't be surprised. 
The world hates the Bible. The world hates the truth. They're absolutely terrified of truth. And that is why the demon couldn't handle it anymore. <laughs> just couldn't handle it. Ah! That's, I mean, just, he couldn't handle it. As Jesus is pounding truth, he's just one after another, line after line, line after line, line after line. I can't handle this. And the people are like, that's amazing. That's amazing. I've never seen anything like it. I've just had boring after boring after boring. I'm not even sure if this stuff is even true anymore. Until he showed up. He made sense of all the Old Testament. How it pointed, Luke 24, how it all pointed to him. Truth will always destroy Satan's fortresses and ideologies. You can look up in your own, on your own or read it now. But 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 5 shows you exactly how to defeat lies of Satan. It's always with the truth. It is not ghostbusters. It is not trying to talk to demons. It is not getting loud. Demons don't react to volume. But then, just then, uh, the, they cried out, and it says in verse 24, so number, number one is uh, demons scream because of the word of God, and number two, because of Christ's judgment coming. And verse 24 is saying this, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, just for a moment here, I just want to show you that there's no Old Testament passages where we see, other than Genesis 6, 1 and 2, where we see demon position, like actual demon position. We see Satan in there. We see demons doing things, but not as far as a possession taking on the form of a human being or, you know, possessing them uh, maybe through their vocal cords or through their actions like we see here in, in the Gospels. Now, Genesis 6, 1 and 2 says, Now it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, this, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whoever they choose. So that's, uh, many scholars believe that the, uh, the sons of God were angels. And perhaps they were fallen angels at that time and they intermixed with human beings that they shouldn't have done. Then in the New Testament, we have this, Acts 16, 16 through 18, where we saw, excuse me, we saw Paul, remember in the slave girl, he wouldn't put up with it anymore. She just kept yelling and saying, this is the son of God. This is, you know, the, stop, be silent. And, and uh, because just like Jesus told them to be silent multiple times, why do you think that is? Because Jesus didn't really care for demons to be the primary spokesman of the gospel. Acts 19, 13 through 16, the sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest got subdued by demons because they had no authority. So then they were possessed afterwards. Matthew 8, 28, in the, the country of the Gerasenes, two men were demon-possessed, met him, and they were coming out of the tombs, and they were extremely violent. And then Matthew 9, 33, after a demon was casted out, the mute man spoke. So we see here demon possession throughout the Gospels. And Luke 8, 2, says this, that uh, a woman named Mary had seven demons who were casted out of her. 
And she then joined Jesus' ministry. Well, Luke 13, 11, a woman who's for 18 years had sickness. So we know that the demons can cause sickness in people's bodies. Uh, not all sickness is a demonic. But we do see that, that they caused uh, some sort of sickness by a spirit. She was bent double. She couldn't stand up straight. And then there's a whole slew of other scriptures that speak about demon possession. But this demon began to scream through the vocal cords of this man who was possessed. And I want you to know that this is good news for us, that destroyed doesn't mean annihilation. Destroyed means that Jesus was, that word means destroyed means he was ruining their power and plans. He is rendering them powerless. In other words, that's what he was doing. And that us-we conversation that he's having, he's like, what business do you have to do uh, with, with each other? What, what business do you have to do with us? Uh, are you coming to destroy us? That we, us, is talking about not necessarily that there were multiple demons, although there were in other passages in the Gospels, you do see that, that many demons can actually come into a, a person. But in this case, it was most likely a single demon, but when he met by us and we saying, hey, there's many more. We're all under the authority of Satan. And so there's actually more. And you can pick up with Isaiah that story of how they fell. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. You can look up that on your own later. Showing you the I will pride statements of Isaiah 14. That's speaking of Satan. And then also Ezekiel 28, the fall of Satan. There as well, you can see how that you can put the pieces together. As some maybe even call what is known as kind of like the Genesis 0.5. It's like right before you see chapter 1, what happens in the serpent. Well, how did the serpent get there? Where did he come from? What is all this stuff? He's a fallen angel. You've got you to have the whole counsel of God to be able to understand that and put that all together. But there is no doubt, no question, and Mark wants us to know this, that demons knew who Jesus was. And I think it's interesting that he did that demons called Jesus two things. One, Jesus of Nazareth. That was a mockery to him. We've discussed earlier that that town was uh, looked down upon. It was frowned upon. Uh, that it was an obscure town. It was uh, held in low esteem by the Jews. And so really the demons were mocking him, saying, look, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. Come from this town, lowly town. But not only that, but they also had a level of respect for him because he said, I know who you are too, you're the Holy One of God. And that Holy One of God means a couple of things. One, they knew, this is key for Mark, they knew he was sinless and pure. This is truly the Lamb of God, the pure Lamb of God that would take away the sins of and not only that, but they knew that they would be destroyed. That Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He would throw them in the lake of fire at some point. And Jesus here in verse 25, which is the third point, Jesus had power over demons. He's giving them a taste of his authority right now before he gives them a real taste of his authority when all is said and done at the end. And Jesus rebuked him and saying, be quiet and come out of him. I think it's interesting that the exorcists, back in the first century and even a little bit before then, they would use magical incantations 
incantations, uh, formulas. They would even put smelly roses up people's nose or uh, flowers up the people's nose because they thought the demon inside of them kind of would be disgusted by the smell and they would just sort of escape. Of course, you know that's silly. But then even in church history, as you trace church history, excuse me, you also could see that uh, a guy named Origen who uh, really made a mess out of the Bible because of the allegorical interpretation that he had, but he was still useful to church history in some degree. But he would, uh, he would not only use Jesus as authority to cast out demons, but he also used martyrs. So he'd say by the, by the power of Jesus, but also he would list out a bunch of martyrs who died uh, because he thought that blood was precious which it is, but not in that way. Um, and then also, um, later on, in the medieval times, uh, people would just make the sign of the cross and just and show the cross or do something like that to just sort of spook the demons away. Now we know that in Luke 9.1, this is very important that you pay attention to this because I want a church that knows how to do biblical spiritual warfare. And Luke 9.1 says, Jesus delegated to his disciples the power to cast out demons. And the key word is he's delegated to his, what? Disciples. And then in Luke 10, later on, he sends out the 70. But that was an apostolic commission. This is what, but he never, listen to this, but he never commands his followers to do the same. Now, I'm going to say a few things that might sound a little confusing, but that's why I want you to pay attention to this. Okay, so why... Why did he do that? Here's what Sinclair Ferguson, he's a theologian, this is what he says. Why is there so little de demon possession referred to in the Old Testament, and why so little outside the pages of the Gospels? The answer to that question, I think, is pretty clearly the presence of Jesus. The very presence of Jesus caused that to happen. I once heard an illustration. It's almost like, say, you, you go through a Florida field or a Texas field in the middle of the summer. You know what happens? All these grasshoppers start flying, all these bugs start flying all over the place because of the mere presence of your body going through that. But it was just a wonderful field before you touched it. There was no bugs until you came in, <laughs> right? The presence of Jesus Christ in the flesh who came to bring our redemption was bound to draw the most ferocious attack of the evil one in order to withstand, listen, the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, could we say there's still demons or still possession? Yes. But the reason why it was so intense then is because Jesus showed up. And they wanted to block that salvation plan from happening so you and I would be saved. Mark 5, remember the one who had the, the legion of demons? The, the point was not about the man that had a bunch of demons. The point was that there was a surge of demons before he got to that place because Jesus never landed there before. And there was a surge of demons to stop him. He was a pretty violent man. Remember, he cut himself, he, he, you know, he, he was naked and crazy. All that to stop the Son of God. And Mark's here as much as said, well, did that stop the Son of God? Absolutely not. Be quiet and come out of him and throwing him into convulsions the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. Demon, God has authority over the demonic world. And then in Acts 19, 13, 16, these non-apostles, so this is again proof that you and I can't just waltz around just talking to demons, casting out demons at our will, because these non-apostles 
who didn't have, that, that the demons, they knew Paul, they knew Jesus, but they did not know them. And unfortunately, they jumped on him like a tiger and messed that man up, messed those men up pretty bad. The seven sons of And so you might be thinking, what happens though? I understand that that happens here, that the enemy strategy in the United States may not, to be, may not want to blow its cover, right? But what happens? You might hear stories. You and I have heard stories. I know I've heard stories. What happens overseas? What you heard stuff in Africa, you know, people foaming at the mouth and these crusades and it getting wild. And, and, and maybe that's so. I mean, we're not denying that, that there's demonic manifestation. Not at all. In fact, this guy, John Nieves, in the 19th century American Presbyterian missionary to China in 1829 and 1893. I thought this was really interesting. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson speaks about this man and shows us how we are today to fight the demonic world. It says he wrote a book on demon possession in which he had spoken to many missionaries and asked counsel of many missionaries that reflected on the phenomenon of demons for years. What was most striking is the presence of Christians in areas where the gospel has not been penetrated, which is true. You see that activity most like that in those areas where the gospel has not yet been shown. You see this with people who are demon-possessed, they will arouse the presence of the demon when the missionaries come in to such an extent that the demon will react to their presence. The vast majority of cases where demons were cast out, they were actually cast out by prayer only in moments of confrontation. In the sense that when Christian missionaries said their backs said that their backs were against the wall, have then have they directly, as it were, in the name of Jesus, cast out that demon. In all of these cases, they have taken to heart Jesus' words. Listen to this. Remember when his disciples failed to cast out a demon? Remember that story? Was that Mark? We're going to come to that, Mark 9, 29. It says this. But this kind of prayer, or this kind of demon, only comes out through prayer. In other words, prayer is the only resource that we don't really have. Like I said in June, this is the same thing. You just, the Lord rebuke you. I'm not just going to talk to demons. I don't think any one of us should do that. And I want to make sure our church is obviously safe and, and God has full authority over them. We pray for our friends. Maybe you know somebody even today that just, I, I just, you know, they're majorly influenced by demons. Pray for them. We have, we pray for people here and, and we've had a few manifestations here or there at times and it got interesting, but uh, we're to provoke them. We're to go after them, to cause a scene. They are real. They aren't to be messed with. It is a serious matter. And we want to make sure that we're praying for them and we're asking God to deliver that person from the demonic world. I love it that Jesus said, First, a few things here I want to say before we close. One, he said to be quiet, to silence them, to strip the, the demon of power. They can't talk. Even though you might be thinking, well, Jesus, oh man, that'd be amazing. I mean, these guys are the only ones that know that he's the son of God. He might as well just cut him loose, cut the demons loose. Of course, they, we know that that's not God's plan to transform the nation's 
That's not his plan of discipleship. In Mark 1.31, he says, he told many demons, he says this throughout the passage, the secret, the secret messiahship of Jesus. Uh, he, he tells them to be quiet. He's hold, hold us under wraps until he dies on the cross. And then the, the book of Acts takes it to another level. He says to come out of him, which is a violent departure. It says later in Luke 4.35 that this demon, the same story, this demon was casted out and nothing, no harm was done. Now why does Mark just kind of leave that? Why, maybe the readers are like, what happened to him? He was in convulsions. Did he stop? Uh, we have to pick that up in Luke to find out that. But what was Mark's goal? What was Mark's goal in keeping that, that information from him, from us, is that the focus is on Jesus. The focus is on him, not the boy. That he has power over the demonic world. And the crowd was absolutely amazed. It says here that they were amazed in verse 27. So they debated amongst themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits they, that they, and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. In other words, these disciples were amazed because of two things. One, he had incredible authority through his word when he preached. And people knew it. And number two, he had amazing power. He just he cast, he, he had cast out many demons. So what was actually, what is Mark's goal here, I guess, as you kind of bring this to a close? I just, I, I think it's interesting that he amazed the crowds and he terrified demons. So what is our response? One Bible commentator, commentator Edmund Heber, said something really profound that I came across. He says, how pathetic it is that they were occupied with the effect of the casting out of demons and failed to inquire further about the person before them. Do you know you could do the same? You could look at this, even this message today and be like, yeah, it's another story about Jesus. That is foolish. Let me ask you, where is your heart this morning? Is this, is, is this another passage just about the Lord? Like, I know that. I know he cast out demons. No kidding. That's not even the point. The whole point of this passage is the reaction of the people. The reaction of the demons was terrified. The reaction of the people was amazed. And you have to ask the question, what is your reaction? Because your reaction must be to fear him as judge. The word of God must produce the fear of God in us as a church. And not only that, but we must run to him as Savior. The demons can't run to him as Savior. But we can. The demons only can be terrified because they know their end. And that's hell. But you know what? As people, as they were listening to this, you saw, and we're going to get verse 29, and immediately they went to this came out of the synagogue and they moved on with ministry, not one of these people said, you know what? Maybe this is him. And if it is, we're giving our life to him. That's the only proper response. They can't just be, we can't just be left after a message. We can't just be left with being terrified. We must run to him as Savior. We can't just be left with just being simply amazed by this person. 
We have to submit to him, obey him, and follow him for the rest of our lives. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word that by the power of your spirit, you change lives. And I know some of us are listening to this, maybe even later sharing this truth with other people through either the podcast or through just then walking through the passage with someone who's far and lost and needs to know that no matter what darkness is in their life, you have power over it. Jesus, you have complete authority over the darkness, over demons. You are the Son of God. You are worthy of all of our lives and our submission to you. We say yes to you once again. And would you stir our hearts this morning to grasp this, that we are not just to be simply amazed or even worse, like the Pharisees who later on say you had a demon or hard-hearted or indifferent. That every scene you demand a response. demand a response from all of us this morning that we might be terrified in a good good way that you hold the powers of life and death. You hold the powers of, of the keys of heaven and hell. And like Edward says, it is a terrible thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. And that's why we want to run to you because you are gracious and you say that in Hebrews that we can run to your throne room of grace knowing that we will receive mercy. And if you need mercy this morning, just run to him. Know he has total power over your sin, the total power over the bondage, the repetition of your sin, the habitual nature of your sin. You know, the, the place where you feel like you, you just can't get over that particular sin but he can do it. He is powerful. Maybe you're terrified, or not terrified in a sense that he has power. You know, it says in, in Matthew that, you know, why, why be fearful of man? They could just kill you. They could just kill the body. But be fearful of him who can throw your body into heaven or hell. God, teach us how to fear you. Teach us to tremble at your word. The demons trembled at your word, but yet they couldn't be saved. And may we tremble at your word and be saved and sanctified and set apart. May we not be astonished, not just astonished, but yet run after you, follow you, drop our nets, pick up our cross. pray for your grace and your mercy this morning. Fill us with faith. Only you can do that. That truly is a gift. We can hear words. We got ears. But do we have ears to hear? And I pray that that, those blinders would come off of people today and their loved ones today. 
that we would know that we would know that you are truly the Son of God. And you are worth our lives. In Jesus' name.